before Square started, if you asked customers in payments, any trader, and said, how high would you rate the look of your payment terminal in picking a payment terminal, they would rank it very, very low. Totally practical and reasonable response. What you have to add to that is realizing that people are complicated and a mix of practical and emotional. And if you don't appeal to both of those things, I don't think you can make something that's great. Hi, and welcome to The Pickle. I'm Helen Sunis, the CEO of RMIT Online. I couldn't be more thrilled to introduce this week's guest on The Pickle, Jesse Dorogaska. Jesse is the hardware lead at Square, that iconic, beautifully designed payment system that has disrupted old-fashioned cash registers and FPOS machines all over the world. Before that, Jesse was the brains behind some of Apple's most iconic products in that period of Apple where they launched iPhone, iPad and iPod accessories. Today's podcast was recorded live at an event in RMIT's spectacular design hub. I had the amazing opportunity to interview Jesse there in front of a room full of excited RMIT online students and a number of members of industry and designers from across Melbourne. Anyway, that's enough from me. Let's jump right in to this interview with Jesse Dorogaska of Square. We know the headlines of your CV, but it's always really interesting to hear the journey from your perspective, maybe what you've loved, what's been interesting in that journey, and how on earth do you get those jobs? Most of my colleagues in Silicon Valley grew up building computers and tinkering. Uh, and I have a bit of a different story from them because I wanted to be a professional baseball player or a rock star. <laughs> and, and that's all, that's all I wanted to be. Uh, baseball fell away pretty quickly because you can't really fake that if you're not good enough. Rock star you can fake for a surprisingly long time. Uh, so I did that for a while and I didn't really think about product design or engineering at all until I, I was in university. Uh, so I, I went to college with an idea that I was good at math and science, whatever that meant, and I wasn't going to play baseball, uh, and discovered engineering in the context of product design. And it was like an explosion in my, in my brain, really excited about what it meant to envision something and do it, and then hate it and fix it, and then do it again, and then continue to build things that didn't used to exist and bring them into the world. Uh, so that's where that started. Uh, professionally, uh, I, I was saying earlier, I haven't had that many jobs. This is my fifth job of my career, and at almost 50, I can't tell you many, many stories about career transitions or finding new jobs. I've really stayed in, in a lot of places for a super long time. What I can say has been consistent is that you have to believe in the people you're joining, and you have to believe in the culture you're joining. And either you believe that they're already good or that you can make them good. And when you have an intuition that either of those two things is off and you make a bunch of excuses of why that's probably not that important, you're probably wrong. Uh, because culture of a community of people you're working with is, in the end, everything. Uh, you can't really get anything done if that's broken, either broken for you or broken uh, in general. So a bit about your products uh, before we get right into design. Um, I, I was at Etsy when you did your original card reader and it changed the game. Suddenly uh, people at markets could take 
cards uh, with just their iPhone and all free. Um, but the one, the, the product that's obviously so iconic uh, is is in every hipster cafe and boutique in Melbourne, it seems, um, is this one. Um, just tell us a bit about how the genesis of that product. Sure. The, the card reader, which is in the US was even simpler than this. It, it just read a magnetic stripe card and we gave it away for free. Um, the idea of the card reader was to build the very simplest thing we could possibly imagine that would connect the smartphone that everyone was carrying to the billion credit cards that consumers were walking around with. Uh, and that was the big idea. And the result of that is that anyone could get started. Any entrepreneur, any casual business owner, any I'm not even sure I'm a business owner, could download a free app, get a free credit card reader, and try something, experiment with something. Uh, and the result of that is that so many more people were included in the economy. There are over, still over 20 million businesses in the US who can't accept credit cards because the bank's practices are so exclusionary. And we figured out that that was a global phenomenon. Uh, and really the big idea of the reader was that the products that people were carrying in their pockets were so incredibly powerful that we really, we were given permission to do less because people had so much computing power in their hands. Uh, and that gets you only so far. And what we discovered as we were serving larger and larger businesses, they had different sets of needs. Uh, a business owner doesn't want to hand their phone over to their employee, doesn't want to or doesn't want to or can't buy 10 iPads and three phones and hand them out to their multiple location businesses. They needed a different set of tools. And we, as a company, have invested a lot more in software that serves them and we also had to reflect that in the hardware that we built. And that's why we built this square terminal, which is all in one, doesn't require a phone, doesn't require a tablet, and was really a break from the very big initial idea to expand our sense of who we were and who our customers were. And that's what we are here to announce uh, and launch this week. So please tell us about, you're all over the news. Um, let, let us hear it from you direct. Um, what is your new product that you've launched and uh, been uh, released today in Australia. That's right, it went live today. This is the Square Terminal, all-in-one, uh, has the power, um, the connection to software that you'd expect from the smartphone in your pocket. It is not like the credit card terminals that are all over the world that are incredibly outdated, disconnected from software, have yellow keypad on them that basically do one thing, uh, which is fine, they're okay. Uh, but I think they're really um, in opposition to what we know is a software-based world that is expanding and growing. So this Square Terminal is for businesses of all kind to accept all kinds of cards and put the power of software in their hands to run a point of sale, send invoices, check their transactions, do a lot more than you can do with a simple keypad machine. And, and how did you decide it was the time to diversify? Obviously that's, that's, a, that's a big step in, in complexity and... and what are the risks of that diversification and, and how did you know it was now? A lot of the insight came from our customers. Uh, a lot of the things you can do with the Square Terminal, you can also do with a smartphone and this simple reader. And when you talk to customers, you can try to convince yourself that they should be satisfied with a phone and a tablet and, and the reader. You should be satisfied with that. You should get rid of that credit card terminal and you should be able to use your phone. It's logical, it does all the same things, it runs software, it accepts cards, what's the problem? And you can just stare at them and insist that you're right or 
you can go a little bit deeper and observe and ask uh, and question your assumptions about why you think you're so sure that they should be fine with a phone and a tablet and a reader. And eventually we discovered you know, a very long list of reasons. And those lists of reasons, which were both direct conversation and observation, sum up into a product definition, and that's, that's exactly this product. So how many terminals have you got deployed? Do you share that? We don't. Okay. So imagine there's millions around the world now. It's rolling fast in your five countries. Um, yep. Um, you have a lot of opportunities being in that many hands to develop products. How do you decide, you know, the, the classic dilemma, I know there's a lot of digital people in the room of the product roadmap, which one, why this one versus the others, and how do you, how do you know you're right? Our product roadmap is probably the hardest question in all of product development. Uh, any answer sounds like a linear answer, that you start here and then you do this and then you do that and then you have a product roadmap. And, and none of it looks like or feels like that, that line. Thinking that your customers are going to tell you exactly what they want and you're just going to write it down and do it is wrong and will ask you to do too many products. You'll make Swiss Army knives, you'll do 15 products in a product line that really just needs two. So you really have a role of editor to take all of the input and decide what you have capacity for, what you have appetite for, and where you can really stand out, where you can be excellent. Uh, one of the things I really liked about Square from the beginning and maybe learned a little bit at Apple is setting a very high bar for, for doing something. Believe that every product you're making is elective. You could choose to not do it and instead invest in an existing product, spend your time refining take it in some other direction. So deciding to not do things is super powerful because everyone's time and money is so valuable. So the product roadmap has to emerge from customers, from opportunity, and then the fierce editing of saying no to dozens and dozens of things. And your criteria for that no, can you share? <laughs> this sounds sadly negative, and I don't think it always feels that way, is that most product ideas have to start with no, or like a Maybe not no, maybe more like a skeptical why. Why? Are you sure that they want that, that they need that, that they asked for that? Is that really what, is that really what we're talking about here? Because couldn't this other thing happen? So editing it down, simplifying the problem is, is the work. And I mean, I've done it dozens of times, not hundreds of times, so I can't say with total confidence, but you kind of know when you've distilled it down to that right, simple thing. Uh, and it usually involves some pretty hard choices of saying no to a lot of things. No, no product manager gets fired initially for adding features to a product. They get rewarded and they get accolades for coming up with things to add to, uh, to an ecosystem, to a product, to a feature list. That doesn't really work. How do you bat them down? I'm just going to ask it one more time because it's so fascinating how you, simple you kept all these products. How did you bat the features back? Because there's always, you know... There's the lines of people <laughs> and of clients saying they want different features, especially with larger clients as you go up. You know, you start to get the bespoke requests and so on. How, how, do, you, how do you say no? Oh, boy. Uh, well, what I said earlier about feeling like the culture you joined is going to set you up for success. At Square, I have that partnership in Jack from the very beginning uh, because he is a fierce editor, a simplifier. And at Apple, I think that is their superpower to say no, ruthless, sometimes unfriendly no <laughs> to this because we're going to do this better. Um, I've heard 
people joke about, I never heard this at Apple, but people would joke that the executive team would come up the th with the three most important things to do over the next five years, and they'd fight over it, and then they'd come up with the top three, and they would just cross out number two and cross out number three and say, let's just do the first one. And that intense focus, even now there are tens of thousands of person organization, is what creates greatness. So some combination of culture and courage is the answer. Diving into design, payments wouldn't have been the first place I would have thought an iconic design product would come from. How important has design been to making payments more accessible? It's a huge unlock. If, and this is where talking to your customers is a tricky thing. Before Square started, if you asked customers in payments, any trader, and said, how high would you rate the look of your payment terminal in picking a payment terminal? they would rank it very, very low. Totally practical and reasonable response. And if you took that at face value, you would take action in that direction as our competitors have done for decades. What you have to add to that is realizing that people are complicated and a mix of practical and emotional. And if you don't appeal to both of those things, I don't think you can make something that's great. So what we've unlocked with thinking about design in our software and in our hardware is realizing that these small business owners are humans and they're sharing minutes or hours with customers and yes, they're trying to extract dollars from those customers, but it's not always that transactional. In fact, very brief part of their interaction is, is that transactional and the rest of it's emotional content. And if you can, even in a payment situation, apply design principles where it's not just how it looks, but it's how it feels, it's how it makes you feel, it's how transparent the information is, how clear it can be. You can up-level the whole experience and then people love your product. And when people love your product, then, you know, then good things happen. To share with us a little bit the design process, you know, you're talking about understanding the emotional and the, and the functional needs. Lots of students of human-centered design and different techniques for getting to that. Can you talk a little bit about your process? How did, how did you land there and, and what was the process like? Again, talking about design process will sound like uh, do this first and then do this second and do this third and it's really much more convoluted and circular and gritty than that. Uh, one of the things I've learned in designing physical products is that I have to make models or my team has to collaborate to make prototypes and those prototypes can be very crude and they can be very sophisticated uh, but after almost 30 years of doing this and looking at some really spectacular renderings of product concepts, I still always learn something when the rendering becomes a model. Because when you're making physical devices, there is something about picking it up and understanding its weight and the way that light reflects off it. Even though rendering software is spectacular at doing light reflections, it doesn't put it in your hand and let you move it around. So I learned so much from, from model making. If you had to guess how many models of a terminal we made before making this one, you thinking of numbers of models? 3,000. Wow, 3,000 would be very fun. Um, it was probably somewhere between 100 and 200. And each model is a collection of very good and very terrible ideas. And you have to look at them and feel them not as if they're a product proposal, but they're more like a, a platypus. They, they, they're like you can oh, right. yeah. you can comment like don't try to like 
pick up, if you're in the early prototyping phase and you make 10 models and you're asking for feedback from either customers or people internally, don't ask them to pick one. Ask them to respond to very specific things about them, whether it's the duck bill or the, I'm gonna stop with the metaphor. Um, <laughs> because you can take all that feedback and turn that into 10 other models that are different mixes and matches uh, of things that people responded to. It, it felt great when I picked it up. Oh, I didn't even see that attribute until you put it back down. I didn't realize the door opened that way. Wow, I cut my finger when I picked that thing up. I've done that before. You build models with super sharp edges because they look great in a rendering and you actually cut people who are handling your product. <laughs> Shouldn't do that. So my design process always includes a lot of prototyping and model making. In fact, I had a teacher once who said, this probably depends on the job, but he said, um, never show up to a meeting without a prototype. And everyone's like, never? Like, I have meetings all week. He's like, no, prototype, any level of sophistication or prototype, notepad, sketch, uh, origami, uh, a rendering, a model, foam core, or something more complicated, just never show up without a prototype. I haven't lived that exactly, but it rings in my head as, if you believe it's part of your process, it should be part of your process, and it should be part of your normal practice. It must, it must be a scary moment, given hardware is, you know, high stakes, you you're building it in a big factory and you're shipping it and everything. How do you, you know, for those of us that work more in software where you can change it tomorrow, you ship it and change it, how do you know when it's the final prototype? How do you know when you press, I mean, when you press print, it's like a big deal. Again, thinking about culture and people, if you're going to join a company that intends to ship hardware products, you put yourself on a schedule. You run out of time. No one has infinite time. Not no one. People who ship products regularly don't have infinite time. There are artists who have infinite time. There are some product people. Some, I think some companies have achieved an incredible amount of patience. Take as many years as you want to get to that thing you want to do, but most practical concerns don't let you get there. So you have to give yourself some constraints. Uh, a great product development organization can ship, and that means working backwards on a schedule and deciding when you need to start making steel tools that are going to make the injection molded parts, which means you need to finish all the surfaces and you probably need to pick a color somewhere in there. So you work back and you add a constraint. I don't think I have often felt like totally done, maybe ever. You just run out of time uh, and then you feel good about your process that got you there. If you have a really great idea, you gain confidence that there were many good solutions and you probably have one. Uh, if you feel like your decisions are so high stakes that it's make or break on whether we made this thing white or gray. I hope we didn't bet the whole product line on the choice of, of white over a slightly off-white because I think there are a lot of other good ideas about this product that will carry it forward. But the most important thing is to give yourself a deadline uh, because the people I've wanted to work with, the cultures of product development I have fallen in love with to do product development, these people want to ship products in, into the world, and if you make it an academic-only exercise and you're just sharing renderings and talking about concepts, that's cool, but you will not attract those people. You will attract a different set of people, and then you're, you're really not in the product development field. You're in some other field. Just diving on people, because you're now a leader of a lot of designers. Can we explore that a little bit? How have you scaled? I mean, you've, you've built 200 people, you say, in your team now at Square, how have you made sure you've kept that culture that that's everywhere across 200 people as you hire, as you work with them? 
Well, it's a good time to reflect on that since we're launching a new product today. There's something that happens to a whole organization when you do ship. Um, I was telling the team earlier today that earlier in my career, I always hated uh, launch day. Narrowly, as an engineer, you think like all the work happened already. This is just this is just the marketing. I said some very terrible things probably earlier in my career. Um, but there is a realization that you are bringing something new into the world. And in our case, hundreds, maybe a thousand people have, have gotten their hands into this thing and will continue to invest in this product over time. It's an incredible feeling to build things and put them out in the world. So when you, when you love that, that's what you use to inspire people. That's what you use in the interview process. You talk about a time that you were designing something and ran out of time. You talk about when you knew that you had the right design concept. You talk about when you raised your hand in a concept review and said, we're off track. I don't think this is accomplishing our goals. I don't think that customer feedback is right. I don't think we should listen to Jack's opinion this time, Jesse's opinion this time. I think they're wrong. I think we need to take a different direction. So that culturally, it just becomes part of your process from interviews all the way through that people are really interested in coming up with their best ideas, committing them in steel, and shipping them to customers and then taking your lumps after that. Like I said, I've, I've spent a lot of time at most of the jobs I've had. I've enjoyed living with the good and bad of, of each decision uh, and process from the team. And if you can create a learning organization, then you get to do it again. Assuming you survived the first one, not all businesses get to. I've been fortunate. Um, but creating a learning organization from that, that urgency to ship uh, is when you feel like you've built an engine for product development, not just a product. I think now at, at Square and before that at Apple, I had achieved that, that engine that could pick a thing, do a thing, deliver a thing, learn from the thing, and then do it again. It's incredible. Financial services, in, and it's very topical in this country, you probably know, has, you know, you would say in the, in the customer hierarchy of needs, trust is really strong as well. What's the role of design in, in trust in this world or is that other elements of your service where you build trust for, you know, taking transactions and, and, and entering a, a world that banks have traditionally owned? We are fierce protectors of trust in our, our brand. Even when we were a startup of, even before I joined the company, we were 20, 30 people. They were taking live transactions on the financial network, depositing money into customers' accounts. And you can imagine any software enterprise that's, 20 people moving money and working with big companies, they made a few mistakes. So we had outages and we put the wrong amount of money in people's bank account. And that was rare at the beginning and was increasingly kind of urgent to make sure that that didn't turn into mistrust. So we, I think we earned our, we earned trust in being good stewards of money. But your question was about how design can foster that, right? One of the values that, that Jack has brought to the company from the very beginning has been transparency. We use that internally to make sure we're communicating with each other openly, but it's really powerful with customers when you can show them the dollar amount they're being charged and show them the amount that's being deposited into their account tomorrow and then show them that that amount was deposited in their account. Design has a role in that because if you can't communicate that clearly, even if you're able to accomplish it, you don't really win the trust. The trust is doing it and then making it evident that you did all of those things. And our software, our software designers really early in the company were, were maniacal about that clarity for, for customers, and, and that's been a good source of trust for us. And then over the years, as, as we've scaled, we've kept, our, we've kept our mistakes small. 
we've owned up to them when we've made them. We communicate with customers pretty openly when we have outages. We built whole websites that were separate from our data centers so that we could, if we did have downtime, have separate servers that were up to tell our customers that our service was down. And you only learn that when you try to communicate with your customers when your service is down and you'd say, oh my god, I don't know how to communicate with my customers. So we've developed muscle over time to really build robust systems for communication. Uh, and design is critical in that. Again, if you are successful in doing all those things right and you fail to communicate it to them and they still call you and say, my deposit looks messed up. If your answer is, oh, it's not messed up, we just did a terrible job of showing you where your money is, that breaks trust. So you're one of the only payments companies that's doing the software and the hardware yourself, the, the full piece, which is familiar, <laughs> maybe from a previous company as well. Um, how do you think that's helped you differentiate Square in the market? Oh, it's so good. If you, <laughs> it's good and bad. It's a big burden. But if you can take ownership of the technology, take ownership of the hardware and the software and the packaging and the copy that goes on the packaging and the marketing talking points and our website and, and all of those services, you, you can make something that's very cohesive and coherent and kind of good top to bottom. You can long term decide where to invest to make the experience much better and you get insight into what the essential pieces are that you'll never get if, if you do just a small slice of it. And it really forces an accountability. You can't have the hardware team blame the software team or the software team blame Visa or, like there's just no excuses. If you own the whole thing, there are no excuses. And as a team, you have to own up to, this part of our experience is great, this part of our experience is crap, this part of experience, experience needs to get these people maybe moved into a different job. Like you really can't get around the fact that you are responsible for the whole thing. It's obviously served Apple very well to think about the product full stack. Uh, and I think what I'm, I'm starting to, to build at Square is a responsibility not just for the design of the product, but your technology investments over, the over time. Because we discover where we can be stronger just by being responsible for it all. So a few years ago, Square bought a small silicon development company because designing our own silicon and the software that runs on it allows us to build less expensive, more powerful, more efficient payments products than anyone else. A trick I learned at Apple also. So before I hand over to you guys, um, you're working with one of the great players in Silicon Valley who shows off and runs two companies, uh, Jack Dorsey. <laughs> What's it like? We have to ask. And uh, what have you learned from him? Yeah. Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> Jack is outstanding. Uh, he was the one who convinced me to come to Square in the first place. I've, I've worked for him for my whole tenure at Square. Uh, I don't know anyone else like him. He's wonderfully odd. The thing he's brought to the company from the beginning and I still find incredibly useful in talking to him is he's, he, he is a, an editor. He is always trying to simplify, always trying to get to the principles of the decisions. And when I bring him into a room to show him one of the 200 models of the terminal, he, he's curious. And he doesn't pick one. He knows, he knows better because he knows I'm not asking him to pick one, but he will ask questions. What's that choice about? What is that in service of? Did the customer ask for it or are you ascribing something that you think you saw? Tell me more about that. Did you ever see the opposite of that? So he gets very curious and, and it's all toward stripping away 
ego and nonsense and fear. He's totally fearless. And it's very helpful to have that push from the top for the whole company to try to simplify. Because again, if the person at the top or the executive team that I'm on at the top are always asking for more, for complexifying, the team will do it. <laughs> and it will be very sad. Uh, so he's, he's just a voice for simplifying based on first principles. Jesse, thank you. Uh, that was a fantastic hour. It went very fast. The Pickle was brought to you by RMIT Online. Change the way you think about learning. We have. Study short courses and full degrees online on your terms. Head to online.rmit.edu.au to find out more.